Um, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25, which is page 2 in the Church Bibles. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. <coughs> the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thanks very much, Katie. Uh, we're going to be looking at that together, so do keep that open. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheets, if that's helpful to you. And as usual, there'll be an opportunity at the end if you have any uh, comments or questions. Um, do save that up for question time. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful good and rightly sovereign over us. And we pray now that we would be careful in our response to hearing your voice, that as your people, 
you would vindicate your character by trusting, listening, and obeying your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Most people agree that the world is not as it ought to be. But there's considerable confusion as to what people think the actual problem is. What is wrong with the world? Some suggest that the problem is environmental. If only we can learn to, if only we can learn to take care of Mother Nature, then she will look after us. Others suggest the problem is education. If people could only be better informed, then they'd be able to make the right choices in their lives. And still others suggest that the problem is one of selfishness and greed. Whether that be in the world, leaders and governments, or closer to home in our own hearts. And the suggestions go on. What is wrong with the world? And it's going to be crucial to diagnose the problem correctly. For it's only when we understand what's wrong with the world that we can understand what's going to be required of the solution. If the problem's global warming, then the solution is reducing greenhouse, greenhouse gases and renewable energy. If the problem's lack of education, then the solution's more education. If the problem is selfishness and greed, then the solution is for people to be more generous. The nature of the disease determines the remedy. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 2. And on first glance, we might be tempted to think that Genesis 2 is written to complement the accounts of creation given in Genesis chapter 1. The account of creation in Genesis chapter 1 gives a, a cosmic picture of God's activity. Whereas the account of creation in Genesis 2 is much more personalised, emphasising the special relationship which existed between God and the first humans. In other words, although the two accounts of creation differ in style, they complement each other. The first offering the cosmic view, the second a more personal view. However, there are two indications that Genesis 2 is not so much a complement to Genesis 1, but that Genesis 2 is to be taken together with Genesis 3. The first indication is that the style of Genesis chapter 2 is the same as that of Genesis 3, and therefore they're to be taken as one literary unit. The second indication is the initial wording in chapter 2, verse 4. If you look there, Genesis chapter 2, 4, it began, uh, Katie began the reading with these words. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, it's worth marking this because these words will occur nine more times in the book of Genesis. And each time it introduces a new section in the book. So, for example, Genesis 5, verse 1 begins with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 begins with, these are the generations of Noah. And then Genesis 10, verse 1 begins, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And each time the appearance of these are the generations of indicates the beginning of a new section. 
and its presence here in chapter 2, verse 4, indicates that Genesis 2 is not so much a complement of Genesis 1, but it's to be taken together with Genesis chapter 3. Well, what then is the relationship between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? Well, Genesis chapter 3, as we'll see, recounts the story of the fall and its consequences. And that's what we'll be looking at next week. But in order to understand the significance of what happened at the fall, the author of Genesis wants first us to understand the details of what paradise looks like. It's only when we see how the world is to be correctly ordered that we'll appreciate the devastating effects of Adam's sin. It's a bit like one of those before-after pictures. And what we're going to see is Genesis chapter 2 is the before picture and Genesis 3 is the after picture. Genesis 2 will help us to see the devastating effects of sin when we compare it with Genesis 3 next week. Did you notice anything peculiar about how God is referred to in Genesis chapter 2? In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to simply as God. So chapter 1 verse 3, and God said. Chapter 1 verse 6, and God said. Chapter 1 verse 27, so God created man. In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred always as just God. But look at how God's referred to in Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Chapter 2 verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then again in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In Genesis chapter 2, God is always referred to as the Lord God. Why? And why is Lord all in capital letters? We might expect a capital L, because after all he is the Lord God, but why capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? Why is it all in capitals? The short answer is that Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, represents the personal name of God. But interestingly, this name of God is not actually introduced to the people of God until much later in the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Let's take a a brief look. It's on page 46 of the Church Bibles. Let me set the scene. So in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses at Horeb, out of the burning bush. God speaks to Moses and identifies himself as the God of the patriarchs. By this, he means that he's the one who made the promises to Abraham. And he explains that he's about to fulfill these promises by redeeming the Israelites from Egypt. He then commissions Moses to confront Pharaoh and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. However, Moses objects by anticipating that the Israelites will request the identity of the name of their God. And God responds in Exodus 3.14 with, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. 
I am has sent me to you. I mean, it's a strange name for God to give himself. He seems to be saying that no one name can encapsulate his character. If we want to know who he is, we must watch him act in history on behalf of his people. God continues when he says to Moses in uh, Exodus 3.15, God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, all in capitals, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And it's here that God refers to himself for the first time as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And it's linked to his character as the God who makes promises and who reveals what it means for him to be faithful to those promises. Now that helps us to understand that Lord, all in capitals, is the personal name of God. But it still doesn't explain why it's in capital letters. It's in capitals because the translators are alerting us to something a little bit peculiar that's going on. If you recall, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And Hebrew was originally written down without vowels. That is just using only consonants. And the Hebrew word that's translated Lord, capital or capital letters, is uh, capital Y, well, the translation is Y-H-W-H in capitals, from which we get the word Yahweh. And at some stage in Israel's history, they ceased to pronounce what they considered the holy name of Yahweh, and instead preferred to use the Hebrew word Adonai, which means my Lord. And that's why most English translations put Lord, all in capitals, for Yahweh. They're simply reflecting the historical tradition. But the important thing is that Yahweh is the personal name of God. And it's linked to his character as the God who makes the gracious commitment of himself to his people and who is revealing what it means for him to be faithful to that commitment. And what's significant for us this morning is that God is referred to as the Lord God in Genesis chapter 2. It means that God's commitment to his people didn't begin with Moses. It began at creation. And it draws our attention to the personal relationship that God has with Adam. One of the things that's quite striking when you read Genesis 1 is the repetition of a number of different phrases. And one of the phrases is, and it was good, it occurs five times in verses 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. And to top it all off in verse 31, we read that, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so it's really quite striking to read in Genesis chapter 2 that there's something that is not good. Chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now, at this point, we might be tempted to make a point about how God has designed humanity to live in community in relation with other human beings. And central to those relationships is the husband and wife relationship. And there is no denying that Adam is thrilled at God's provision of Eve. However, there is no mention here of Adam feeling lonely or isolated. And actually, it's God and not Adam who says that it's not good for him to be alone. Well, why then is it not good? Well, back in Genesis chapter 1, we saw God's creation purpose for humanity. Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's intention is that Adam would be the head of a whole humanity that would increase and increase in number so the boundaries of the Garden of Eden extend and extend to cover the whole earth. And whilst Adam is on his own, well, he's in no position to bring such a purpose about. It's not until the creation of Eve that God's purpose for humanity is in a position to be fulfilled. Well, in summary, Genesis chapter 2 focuses on the relationships in which humanity is called to live. The first is the relationship between humanity and God. Humanity is to live under the rule of God's word. The second is the relationship between humanity and creation. Humanity is to fill God's creation and take care of it. And these two relationships can be summarised in what we're going to call the created order. You can visualise it as God, humanity, the rest of creation. God at the top, humanity in the middle, and the rest of creation at the bottom. And notice the two sets of relationships that we've just seen. Humanity is to live under the rule of God's word, and then humanity is to fill creation and take care of it. Now, do note, when we refer to the created order, we're not referring to the order in which things were created. The created order is not first light and dark, then water and sky, then land and vegetation, then sun, moon and stars, then fish and birds, then animals and humans. The created order doesn't refer to the order in which things were created. Rather, the created order we're taking to refer to the relationships that humanity has with God and with the rest of creation. Well, next week we look at Genesis chapter 3. And as we go on to consider what's wrong with the world, we're to do it bearing in mind what we learn of how the world is supposed to work, how God has created it to work. Well, let me pray and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis and how it sets up uh, the categories and the origins of your entire plan of redemption. Um, we pray, please, as we prepare ourselves to understand what is wrong with the world next week, that Genesis 2 will help us to see how you intended creation to function. And we do echo the words of the psalmist of how majestic you are that you, above all your creation, 
would make uh, humanity uh, in your image and set them uh, to rule creation under you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, then we want to ask any questions or make any comments. Yes, Nathan. Oh, what, the first indication? Yeah, so I think the um, <clears throat> it's the literary style. So basically, um, I mean, Genesis 1 stands as quite unique in its uh, perspective in terms of God creating the world in six days and then he rests with his creation. Whereas Genesis 2 verse 4, you've got the narrative with Adam and Eve, which you never really come out of. And then, I mean, the chapter 3 verse 1, now the serpent, you know, you just, you're into the story and therefore two just leads you into three. Is that cool? Yes. So, uh, good spot, just for the recording. So, in chapter 24, there's a therefore, and Ricky's, he knows his connecting words, and if you see a therefore, you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's a comment about <clears throat> the, um, uh, the marriage relationship and how that relates to the relationship with father and mother. And it's thought that this is a um, like an editorial note. So if it's the case that Moses wrote Genesis, that having given the account of uh, the creation of Adam and Eve, um, that he then makes a comment to help us understand the significance of that first marriage, if you can put it that way. Um, and I think one of the things that's quite striking about the comment is how significant the marriage relationship is because, let me just read again verse 24, 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this comment about the fact that the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh. This means that in marriage, there's a new set of priorities. That husband and wife priority, or that relationship, becomes a priority over the commitment to uh, father and mother. Now, one of the things the commentator said was that this is actually quite shocking, because... Uh, Back then, the relationship between your father and mother would be a very strong relationship. You know, that whole um, uh, sort of hierarchical system. And so suddenly for the priorities to change, and actually for the priority now as a relationship between husband and wife, would be seen as massive. In many ways, that just underscores how significant this marriage relationship is, because it changes the priorities of, of relationship. Um, I mean, interestingly, the commentator also says today, if actually we, we, we sit very loosely to our relationships with our father and mother, then I guess to change priorities will seem less of a, less of a shift. 
but obviously if if we're um, honouring our father and mother, that's the priority, then in marriage, the priorities change. It doesn't mean that we don't have any any um, responsibilities towards our parents, because clearly we do, but it's just a shift in priority and shows how significant this relationship is. Um, another thing to be thinking about, is that, is that, does that help? Oh. Oh, so I think so. I think it would be is is that here you've got the creation of Eve, um, Adam. So you know, Adam is then says, "This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh." You should be called woman because she's taken out of man. So you've now got this first marriage, if you like. And then the comment is, therefore, in view of what God has created, this this. Um, uh, Adam-Eve relationship, he then says, therefore, this is so significant, this is going to change the, prior- the priorities in, in the family relationship. So I think it's, it's a comment on the, almost the significance of how, how big it is. Is that... Um, just something also to be thinking about is also the whole... Um, Ovi talks about this, I like to think a bit more about it, is... Because there's different sets of relationships we have in the world or in the country. We have the state relationships, and then we have marriage relationships, and we have human relationships. And the question is, what's the priority? What comes first? Does the state serve the family, or do the families exist to serve the state? feels like it's quite a big question, and a lot of confusion about that today. But I take it that here there's the priority in the, the family, um, and actually that we're to understand the state to serve the family relationships because they are their key to God's creation purpose. Thank Yes? Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So this whole idea of this isn't just a one-off. This then becomes a pattern of all future marriages. And so I take it then, that as we want to understand marriage today, that this is going to be a place where you go back to. This is one of the lovely things about the book of Genesis, is it just gives you the origins of everything. It gives you the categories in which we're to understand um, everything. And so, yeah, it becomes then, um, a marriage becomes a pattern. Time for more? Gone the key. Yeah. Okay, so the question about these are generations um, is chapter 2, verse 4, is a heading and it recurs a number of other times in the book of Genesis. What's the significance of that? So, um, So I take it that the it's a way of um, the author giving us um, units of thought. So I guess at the first thing, when you see a repeated phrase like that, we're thinking, okay, we're entering a new section. So I think every time when we see these other generations of X, that we're thinking, okay, this is there's a 
this is the next chapter, as it were. So it's a kind of a, a chapter heading. And that might raise questions like, well, how is this chapter relating to the last chapter? If you put it that way, what's, why is it divided up in this way? Um, now, in terms of what's going on, is that these are the generations of the reason why you have it. So if you look at the first, the next one, in fact, let's go on to... Um, Um, so if you look at, say, for example, Genesis 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. And th this begins with the, where's, have we got the death of Noah's father? Where's that? We'll see that. Oh, um, verse 31 of chapter 5. So what tends to happen is, the, actually this is maybe not the best example because you have a little bit of text in between, but basically, normally these are the generations of X. That begins when X's father dies. Okay? So it's not the beginning of that person's life. It's the beginning of that person's life as the head of, at the, at the head of the family, because they're the, the previous generation has passed away, and they're the head. So that's what's sort of going on. So you find that, you know, you get to, for example, um, you get to these are the generations of Abraham, and you think, well, I've already met a lot about Abraham, and it's all about his children, but that's just because um, what I just said. But I think the significance puts our attention to is the following of uh, particular family, as we'll see, um, that there's going to be um, the interest in Genesis is not all over the place. It actually very, really quite quickly homes in onto a particular family line that we're going to trace. And the reason for that is because there's a particular family line whom God has made promises concerning redemption that's going to be worked through a particular people. So again, that helps us to read Genesis to be, and I guess you know, it will be set up next week as we begin to see the, the, um, uh, the hint of the promise of how God is going to restore his creation, but it's going to be done through the, his family lines. So, okay, cool. All right, we will leave it there. We're going to sing, um, again, a song about God's uh, grace to us in Christ.